Hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. This week, we're talking about the reopening of South Carolina's public beaches. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We are joined today by reporters Chloe Johnson and Michaela Porter. Both of them have been reporting on local government's responses to the coronavirus pandemic, um, including questions about public beaches, who can access them and when they can. Yeah, and uh, public beaches were one of the first things reopened in South Carolina when restrictions started to be lifted. So just to give a brief timeline of how this has played out, um, Governor McMaster issued an executive order on March 30th, closing public beach access points um, and also public boat ramps in the state. Two weeks later, uh, that restriction on boat ramps was lifted. And then on April 20th, He said that public beaches could reopen. Uh, But at that point, a lot of individual communities on the coast still decided to continue restricting access to their beaches. Yeah. And so we're still in that phase. But some of the last restrictions for beaches are starting to be lifted this week. So why don't where are we at right now? So at this point, I think every you know, we're talking about three beach towns in the Charleston area that we've been focusing on. Um, Isle of Palms and Sullivan's Island um, are sort of east of the Cooper River. And then on the other side of the region is Folly Beach. And all three of them now have plans to lift uh, road blockades. They're all islands. So in many cases, there's only one or two ways in or out. Um, And they were able to essentially stop visitor traffic um, on those routes by putting up blockades. So Isle of Palms was the first to lift theirs. Um, And now Folly Beach will do so um, on May 14th, which is a Thursday. And then um, Sullivan's Island um, did that already on May 11th, which was a Monday. And Michaela, I know you just wrote about this this week. So Sullivan's Island will still have some restrictions, right? Correct. Yeah. Sullivan's Island, um, there's a ban on umbrellas. There's a ban on coolers and uh, beach chairs. Um, The point there being to keep it moving. um, So an exercise only on Sullivan's Island. Um, They'll be the only one that the only beach town that'll have that kind of restriction in place. Um, on Folly, uh, they are allowing people to sit just like on Isla Palms um, and return to beach festivities. Bring bring your cooler, bring your chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's kind of go back to the, the start of these restrictions, because I know um, there were some challenges with enforcement, right? When this when this order first went out restricting beach access and, and Chloe, I know you wrote about that when that happened. Um, so how did communities that that hadn't already, you know, started restricting access to, to beaches, um, how did they comply with that order when it came out? So yeah, it was a really complicated um, situation and through this whole process it's been fraught with towns being concerned the state would sue them the state said they wouldn't sue them um, and sort of executive orders on various levels had to be adjusted but basically the town started you know sort of restricting visitors before the state took action with that order 
Um, and what the state did initially when they did take action was say that all of the public beach paths are closed. So, you know, you may not think about this as public property, really, but that little sand path that you might be walking through in between two houses to get to the beach is um, public. And so the governor ordered those closed for a period. And that led to a really weird situation because, you know, already these towns were blocking traffic. So all the people in the region who enjoy these beaches are cut off from them, except for islanders. So the islanders still had access. And then the governor said, no, you can't walk on these beach paths. So then theoretically, the only people who were going to be able to have access to the beach were people who owned private homes like directly on the sand. Um, And it's like many levels of exclusivity, right? Because, you know, people who live in a suburb off the island or even the city of Charleston were like already kind of mad that they couldn't access the beach. And then it was, you know, in theory, many islanders weren't going to be able to either um, when the paths were closed because they weren't going to have a place to walk on. I think in practice, a lot of these towns sort of took a don't ask, don't tell approach. You know, I mean, they just don't have the people to patrol dozens of beach paths that are in their city limits. Um, And so I don't think there was a real draconian control of that. Um, And then the governor, you know, lifted his sort of beach path order and said, okay, you can, you can walk on the paths. I'm not going to tell you, you can't, but I'll leave it up to each town um, to decide if they want to maintain controls or not. Um, and that helped a lot of these towns that were concerned about legal issues um, for restricting control, especially because there was some concern after an attorney general um, opinion. It's a legal opinion. It's not a lawsuit. But the attorney general basically said, like, no, you can't restrict movement of people <laughs> onto your island. So, um, you know, when the governor basically gave the all clear, um, I believe that was at the beginning of May, um, to, to let towns choose choose their own path here, they had a lot, you know, a lot more comfort in their decision. Right. And the, the main mechanism we're talking about for uh, restricting access because these are island communities are these checkpoints, right? So how have have those worked? Have either of you actually been through one of the, the checkpoints or around one of them to see how they operate? I have, yeah. Yeah, I have as well. So how 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 was that working? Like how would they um how were they restricting access because of course residents could still come through. Um and I know this has changed in terms of what times a day those checkpoints are out, but um how was that working? When I went out to Folly Beach just to kind of I guess test the water, see what that experience would be like. Um I had driven up uh you go over one of the bridges to get onto the island and there's a uh, police um, cruiser parked right um, right in the middle of the road um, with cones set up. Uh, your there's signs leading up to it, the light signs that say you know checkpoint ahead. Um, and as you're driving up, uh, you're slowed down. You come to a stop, and there's an officer that asks you know Do you live here? Um, I said no. Um, you know I'll move. I'll turn around and, and head back. Um, but what I understand is you're asked to like show proof of ID, you know, your driver's license that you live there or some kind of proof that you 
are a resident of the island. There, there was also an interesting loophole that I think folks started to figure out towards the end, which was that um, in at least some of these towns, you were able to get takeout from a local restaurant because, of course, all these restaurants depend on, you know, tourism and foot traffic and visitors. And I think the town councils understood they needed to throw them a lifeline. So, you know, if you were in Mount Pleasant and wanted to get something from, you know, a restaurant on Sullivan's Island, you were allowed to get through the checkpoint if you had a receipt and proof that you were getting takeout. Um, now, of course, while you're on the island, you know, unless you break some sort of law, I don't know that you would interact with police necessarily and they would catch you, so to so to speak, um, for being there when you shouldn't be. So a few people kind of pointed out that that loophole at the time. I'm not sure how many people really took advantage of it. Um, you know, as reporters, we were allowed through because we were essential workers and had to report on what was going on on these islands. And, um, you know, one afternoon I did check out Sullivan's Island when it was still closed. Um, and it was just, it was a weekday afternoon, but it was just absolutely dead. I mean, there was, there was barely anyone there. So I don't know how many people actually took advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's an interesting thing about this is is that we're, I mean, we're talking about beaches, but we're, we're really talking about whole communities here, whole towns um, that just happen to be on islands. And, you know, this is really something that kind of only works in the context of, of being an island. Like you can't, I can't really imagine, you know, how you would close down like Columbia, for example, or Greenville, or even like downtown Charleston. There's just like too many ways to, to get in and out. But, you know, when you've got like an island community with like a bridge that is, you know, your, your main point on and off the island, it's uh, a lot more logistically feasible to to control access to it. You know what? One question that occurs to me while I was well, while we've been talking about this is I know that I know that different states have different ideas about how beaches work um, in terms of like who owns them and who has access to them. Can can either of you explain how does that work in South Carolina? How, like who owns the beaches and and who who is in charge of them? So um, beaches fall under what we would call a public trust resource in South Carolina. And, you know, many states sort of have this this concept um, because beaches are sort of seen as a public natural amenity. You know, there's there's a lot of strong support for waterways being public in the United States. And so in South Carolina, anything from the high watermark towards the ocean is public land. Um, And then additionally, you know, you know, there isn't really a private beach, so to speak here, but there is this tension because we have so many barrier islands and some of them are gated. Right. So like Kiowa Island, for example, um, there is a public park on Kiowa, but many parts of the beach you can't just walk into because they're right next to gated communities um, Hilton Head Island, a similar problem. So it's not necessarily that the beach isn't public. It's that it's not always easy to get access to it from high ground. Do we know any of the differences? I know, of course, we focused, um, you know, being here in, in Charleston on right Isle of Palm, Sullivan's Island, um, and Folly, uh, but some of the difference in, in how this has played out, um, on the Grand Strand in, in, in Myrtle Beach. I know Chloe, you wrote about that a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the Grand Strand um, is what we call 60 miles of beaches, sort of at the north end of the state's coast. Um, it goes all the way from North Myrtle Beach down to kind of the Polly's Island, Georgetown area. Um, and it's one long strip and there are many points of access. So you don't really have the opportunity to do this type of checkpoint. Um, city officials did not really do that. They did, you know, rope off beach paths when the governor gave that order and tried to police the beach as best they could. Um, the thing about that area is that it is so tourist dependent. I know we think a lot about tourism and even over tourism in Charleston, but like, that whole region exists for the summer crowd and for the beach crowd. So um, something that happened there that also happened closer to home is that short-term rentals were for a time restricted and, and even stopped entirely. And so, you know, in that area, if you don't have people in hotels, you're just not going to have very many people on the beach. And that was kind of their main strategy to control it. Um, that has essentially ended now. And, you know, similarly to folks down here, the towns there have legal concerns about being able to stop hotels from renting over the long term um, or even controlling their occupancy levels. So um, rental restrictions have mostly ended up there. Um, and they've they've taken some interesting strategies to try and check on how close people are to each other on the beach um, in one case, I know one town actually used a drone to to see where people were sitting. Right. That was a uh, North Myrtle Beach. Right. Do you, so were, were they how exactly were they using that, I guess? So so drone footage, of course, to see people from above to observe if they're if they're social social distancing. Um, but how exactly were they using that? You know, their argument was and I, I think it it's pretty valid if you're on the ground, your perspective might look like there's a lot of people on the beach, right? Um, but just the way the horizon works, it's kind of mashing everyone together. It's, it's, it is kind of hard to tell, you know, are there a lot of people who are spaced out or is everyone right next to each other? So, you know, these are small towns. They have limited police forces. They have other crimes, you know, to deal with. And they were using this to check on how close people were from above, um, there's obviously some major privacy concerns there, right? I mean, do I want the police checking up on me while I'm like in a bikini on the beach? Probably not. Um, but it's not the first time this type of strategy has been used. Actually, sort of earlier when the state was first starting to shut down things like boat landings, um, the State Department of Natural Resources did fly a plane along the entire coast um, and that was really to check on more remote sandbars and islands where boaters might be congregating. So it's not the first time this has been used in South Carolina. So we, we, we've talked a lot about how, how we started um, putting these restrictions in place. Um, but, you know, now, now we're in a position where we're starting to ease those restrictions. So can we, can we get into like when and why have these, have these beaches started to, to lift restrictions? Um, so last week, um, Charleston County, uh, the chairman, Elliot Summy, he threatened to sue Isle of Palms uh, for their um, uh, roadblock um, because they wanted to open a county park there. And they were trying to comply with the governor's you know, executive orders um, and felt that they had the standing to 
um, go after these municipalities that fall within the county's jurisdiction. Yeah, I think it I, actually I think it might be worth um, just kind of hovering on that point for a second, though, just to just to emphasize how kind of complicated this gets, because, you know, you end up dealing with a, a situation where you've got kind of like three different levels of government. You've got the local like town level, you've got the county level and the state level. And what we're talking about here is the county actually owns a park on this island. And the county's argument is, hey, like our our people, the rest of the people in the county need to have access to this county park that you're blocking people from. And not only that, but the businesses that are now allowed to open. Right. So it's so the chairman said you're discriminating against people that want to patron these businesses that are open now on Folly, where there's also a county park um, and on Isle of Palms, where there's also a county park. Um, So it kind of came to a head last week where uh, uh, Elliot Summy, Chairman Summy, um, threatened to sue. Isle of Palms. They, uh, over the weekend, had voted to keep that roadblock in place, and that's why he kind of zeroed in on them first. Um, they had an emergency meeting on Monday or Tuesday, I believe, and they immediately lifted the roadblock restriction. Everyone could come and go uh, onto the beach, um, but for a while, I think it was up until Friday, um, it was exercise only. And then they had another meeting late last week, and they said, no, people can sit and enjoy uh, the beach in, you know, groups of less than three. Um, and then he kind of, uh, the chairman kind of switched sites to Folly because there was a lot of resistance there. They were keeping the roadblock in place. They switched from 24 hour roadblock to a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, but they were getting a lot of, the county council was getting a lot of feedback from people, you know, West Ashley on the peninsula on James Island saying, you know, we want access to our beach too. Um, and to go patron these businesses that have been hurt for, what, two, three months now? Um, so that's that's where that kind of shift went to toward folly. Um, and then yesterday they had met and decided to lift those restrictions. Um, they're kind of phasing into it through this week with Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 10 to 4, and then Friday. Um, again, they want people to stay in groups of three or less to keep with the governor's order, um, but they're completely backing off. So I'm curious. So first, starting with with Isla Palms, uh, who received um, a, a letter from from Elliot Summit with Charleston County first when they voted to lift restrictions. Did they draw any connection between that decision and that and that letter? Did they say that it was related? So Isle of Palms Mayor Jimmy Carroll tells me that this letter came as they were already planning to have this meeting and discuss it. Okay. Um, so in, in his telling, it had really no connection. I know Michaela and Folly, there was some pushback to the letter, right? Yes, there was pushback. There was talk all last week. There was contentious phone call between um, Mayor Goodwin on Folly and um, County Council Chair Elliot Summy. Um, they were going back and forth all last week. Um, and it kind of it came to a head even more so on Folly um, with a lawsuit filed in court on Friday. Um, but uh, Chairman Summy said, you know, I'm not going to deliver this deliver this lawsuit to the town uh, until they're meeting on Monday, um, see what they're going to do and then go from there. Um, after the vote on Monday night where they decided, no, we'll lift things. I talked to Chairman Summy and he said, I don't see any reason to move forward with legal action at this point. 
so kind of the same question for for Folly Beach, Michaela, did they did they draw any connection between their decision and this possible legal action? Uh, no, the mayor said that it had absolutely nothing to do with the lawsuit and left it at that. Okay. So I'm I'm curious because of course you you listened to that to that meeting. What was that that process like? What was the discussion like? I'm sure that I'm sure that letter in that and that and that lawsuit um came up during that that meeting, right? It it did come up briefly. The mayor brought it up to kind of start the meeting and said, "We're not going to make any of these decisions based on what's being said in the paper, what's being said on social media. Um we're going to make the decision that we feel is best for our community." Um one of the reasons that they had stuck to having uh, the roadblocks in place was they wanted to make sure that they had um, the police and law enforcement that they needed to properly uh, maintain crowds on Defali. Um So that was kind of the argument that you heard from some of the beach towns was this is the easiest way to restrict access to the beach. We can't put an officer at every single one of those paths. So it's easier just to block and know what the crowd is like on island and not let the people onto the island um but as uh council was discussing it last night they had four different votes uh with different times um when they were going to lift it what day of the week it was going to be uh whether they were going to have restriction in place this weekend and then um allow things to be lax next week and then ramp back up uh for memorial day weekend um there was a couple different things that failed uh and then all of a sudden they voted to um except, you know, how things are going to be in place now. Um, one thing that was brought up as well last night um, during the meeting was that police officers that were at the checkpoint were starting to get pushback from non-island residents trying to get onto, uh, onto the island. So they were starting to get increasingly um, more agitated um, people driving and trying and demanding to get onto the beach. Um, so that may have influenced the vote there. Um, just, you know, to make things easier for their law enforcement and not put them in a vulnerable position um, where they're dealing with that as well. These, you know, these islands also have business communities that are super seasonally dependent. Um, and I'm pretty confident that all of those businesses are probably feeling a little nervous as the weather gets warmer um, and we move more into what peak season might be for them. Um, so, you know, you have this outside pressure from the county council chair, you know, who I'm sure is hearing from constituents who are angry and want to be on the beach, but you also have internal pressure, you know, from, from businesses, restaurants, rental companies, whoever, um, that want to see their customers back on the island. Right. And of course, like you'd mentioned before, one of the, um, the restrictions we really saw across all of these beach communities was, um, restricting short-term rentals. And, um, aside from, from Bali, which does have hotels really on these, these beach communities, those short-term rentals are how you get your, um, your tourists there. And, um, of course those are, those are being lifted too. Do we know, have those short-term rental restrictions been lifted for, for all of the Charleston area beach communities or are any of them still restricting that? at this point. The only one I know for certain is that Folly lifted theirs last week when they had voted. Um, they changed it to having a six day minimum for short term rental. Um, but as of Tuesday, um, the 12th, that's lifted. 
So one of the things I, I'm I'm thinking about is how does how does the state play into all of this? I, I I know like at one point the state had decided to close beaches down. So how how does the state level decision making play into the timeline here? Where where are we at there? So at this point, I mean the you know there's no existing mandate from the state with regard to beaches. Um, obviously officials encourage social distancing, but, you know, after that order to, um, close beach paths was lifted, there's no mandate from the state. And I think, you know, individual lawmakers and probably also the governor's office, um, got a lot of pressure because this is a state where outdoor recreation is really important. And there are a few other fun things to do right now, frankly, um, you know, movie theaters are still closed. You know, businesses are starting to get the green light to reopen. Um, some of them are still preparing. Um, some people might still be uncomfortable being in an enclosed space. Um, and so, you know, it's not terribly surprising that um, these beach towns made these decisions first and then the state followed them. And I think there was a lot of concern of like personal embarrassment on the part of the towns because sort of before all these closures came down, there was um, there were quite a few news stories about towns in Florida where spring breakers just absolutely flowed in, you know, probably college kids too, who were out of class. Um, And I think a lot of the towns independently were really worried about, you know, is Isle of Palms going to become the next place where we see, you know, all these young folks rushing in. Um, So, you know, from the state level, I think I think our governor has a really robust understanding of what individual liberty is, frankly, and like doesn't really love the idea of restricting people from public spaces. Cause again, the beach is public and um, our waterways are public in South Carolina. Um, so at this point, you know, the state is not, not enforcing or mandating um, much of anything. They did have an interesting rule at one point that short-term rental accommodations could not rent from places where there were hotspots. So basically the Northeast United States, um, New York, for example. And a lot of the beach towns were really flummoxed by that because they had no way to enforce that. I mean, a hotel might not even know for sure where someone was coming from. Um, but that that has also lifted at this point. Yeah, I mean, I know that this is this is part of a, a huge national discussion and and is um a matter of, of national controversy is is this question of um, reopening and, and whether or not, um, different states and, and different municipalities are actually following the, uh, the right guidelines. Um, you know, you were mentioning the, those, um, pictures out of Florida, um, from earlier and, you know, that, that continues to be a thing that we see, you know, on national news, we see pictures of, of people in parks and, and pictures of people on beaches, what what do we know about the like what what is the science currently telling us about how safe that that really is i mean should should people be outdoors from everything i understand we're still trying to understand this disease um 
I think in a few cases, you know, people have tried to pin certain outbreaks to some of those um, spring break gatherings in Florida. But do we know that people caught it on the beach, you know, where there's open air circulation and fresh air? Or maybe they were all in bars at night um, and sort of much closer together in a contained space. So, you know, I don't know that it's it's clear at all exactly how dangerous one is opposed to the other. Um, I'm totally spitballing. I think Mm -hmm. being outdoors um, with, you know, outdoor air circulation and fresh air um, is probably less risky than being indoors with a lot of other people, especially if they're not wearing masks and especially for a long period of time. With that in mind, what what have we been seeing as as these beaches start to reopen? Are people packing the beaches, or you know, and how are people behaving um, when they get there? I can speak a little to what I've seen on Isle of Palms. Yeah, just just what have you been seeing? Yeah, yeah. So the the first day, and we wrote a story about this, um, or published a story about this, but the first day they were open, it was a weekday. Um, and I, I sort of went in the afternoon and then checked in with town officials after that, just to make sure there wasn't like a huge spike in the evening, but, um, it was pretty empty. It was a lot of families with little kids, um, a lot of people sitting by themselves or maybe one other person, you know, if they were sitting, there was still this kind of keep it moving rule going on at the time. So, um, police were being pretty vigilant about asking people to, you know, keep walking if they could, um, it, it it was really very, very, very spaced out um, for what I would expect on a day with pleasant weather. I will say anecdotally, I did go back to Isle of Palms on Sunday, uh, not for a story, just because I wanted to walk on the beach. Um, and there were a lot of people there. I mean, I I could not tell you for sure that groups of people were closer to each other than six feet. Um, but there were pretty large groups of, you know, obviously just friends, people hanging out, um, probably trying to take advantage of one of the first beach days without these rules. Um, and it was enough people that I didn't see a way to walk the beach without kind of constantly passing other folks. And I left, um, that was just, you know, my personal decision but it was you know it was a it was a weekend sunny day on the beach there were a lot of people there for sure yeah i was there on sunday as well um i uh my brother and i went um brought a beach chair sat there for a few hours and then um he had to pack up and and head out but i ended up walking walking the beach just to kind of see the crowds and um lots of families like you said chloe um lots of puppies that were learning what the water was um, I think coronavirus has been a time that people have been adopting a lot of uh, dogs. Um, so a lot of puppies in the water, um, but didn't see anything too blatant. Some people playing different games, uh, volleyball, so- soccer, that kind of stuff. Um, it seemed like a normal beach day as if nothing nothing was going on in the world. I'm curious what either of you observed in terms of enforcement. Did you see a lot of police officers out um did either of you see any any groups broken up um what were you seeing in terms of that enforcement piece 
Yeah, so on the Wednesday that the rules lifted on Isla Palms, um, there was a really robust police presence. You know, they were consistently driving back and forth, talking to people. You know, the the police chief for that town did tell me that if they saw someone with little kids, they weren't really going to bother them because it's not possible to sort of march little kids down the beach. Um, I was only there briefly on Sunday. I didn't really see a huge police presence. I don't know what you saw, Michaela. Um, yeah, I saw a few um, Isle of Palms police trucks, like uh, pickup trucks, uh, going back and forth, but I didn't see them breaking anyone up. Um, it just seemed like they were taking laps back and forth. Um, just more of a visual presence, you know, letting people know that they were there than anything else. And this upcoming weekend, right, will be the first one since all of these closures started that those three Charleston area beach communities will be open and um, people, at least for the most part, right, will be allowed to, you know, sit and lounge and not just, um, you know, walk, run, jog, be active. Is that right? All but Sullivan's, yeah. So Folly and uh, Isla Palms, you can sit and bring a cooler um, I think they still want you to stay in groups of three or less, or if you're a family, stay as a unit. <laughs> um, but I, uh, Sullivan's wants you to keep it moving, I believe, through this weekend as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens this this weekend. I guess I haven't checked the weather yet on if it's supposed to be a good beach weekend, um, but at least that this will be that that first time in, in quite a while now that um, all three of those beaches will be accessible to the public. Yeah, it's going to warm up quite a lot, um, and I bet a lot of people are going to take advantage of the beach. So on Sunday after I left IOP, I went to Palmetto Islands County Park, um, which has some really nice trails. And I've been doing a lot of trail walking because there aren't many other options. And um, it was pretty empty. Um, Not a lot of people there. So I have a feeling that everyone who wants to be outside, you know, if they have the means and they're comfortable, they're probably going to end up on the beach. My my weather app says it's going to be 28 degrees Celsius. That's what, uh, 80, 82 Fahrenheit? You have your set to <laughs> yeah, Celsius? Yeah, that's like a perfect beach day. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Uh, uh, I will say also our state parks um, have been open since uh, May 1st. And I know that uh, a good number of them um, have, have hit capacity on the weekends, but really the most popular ones. And when you're, when we're talking the most popular ones, those are the ones on the coast. Uh, so our beach state parks, and then also I know some in the upstate as well, but, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the crowds look like this weekend. So I think that's a a good place to leave the conversation this week. We're yet again, recording the podcast remote um from our homes as we've been to well actually Michaela's in the office um but uh we're, we're we're not all physically together and we're we're still um like a lot of y'all um spending a lot of our time working from home so the the question we've been asking all of our guests so far is um just you know how has that experience been going for you and what have you learned from working from home and do you have any tips that you've picked up for for listeners out there yeah so i actually worked from home full time for 8 months when i first got hired to the post and courier cuz i lived in myrtle beach and i covered myrtle beach um so i mean the most important 
thing I've done is not sell the desk that I had (laughs) so that I still have one. I actually, I wrote like a home and garden feature on setting up a home office. And the advice I got over and over was that you need to set up like your monitor if you're using a computer at the right height so that you're not hunching over it or, or crunching your back. Um, and I have been very diligent in not doing that. So I'm still hunting. I would encourage you to, you know, try and set up your screen at eye level, um, and your keyboard at at arm level. That's kind of boring advice, but I think honestly, it's really good advice. For me, I learned that my cat is a lot more needy than I thought. Um, (laughs) he is a true mama's boy, my little, little boy, Finn, um, I've been baking a lot. I know the bread thing has been kind of, I'm trying to stay away from bread because I don't want to hop on completely, but um, I've been doing a lot of like uh, cupcake, like pies and cupcake holders. So you don't feel as guilty having two cupcakes, even though it's the same as probably two or three slices of pie. Um, So I've just been doing a lot of baking uh, and reading. I guess my tip would be one thing that I adopted early on was turning the phone off or stop looking at it at nine o'clock at night. Oh, that's, um, cause I, f- wow, that's really smart. Yeah. Oh, so I just like, I leave it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I found Sorry. myself like reading these like accounts of what it's like. Um, and I was up until four o'clock in the morning. So I decided, all right, like the phone is going off at nine o'clock. Um, I've been kind of sleeping better, but I don't really know. I can't, there's no, like nothing to compare it to. So that's, I guess my tip. Cause that's helped me a little bit. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Yeah. I need to start doing that. <laughs> so thanks to both of you for taking the time today. Before we sign off, what are the best ways that listeners can get in touch with you if they have questions? Yeah, um, you can find my phone number and email on every story I write for the Post and Courier. You can text me, email me, whatever. Um, I'm also on Twitter at at underscore Chloe AJ if you want to reach out there. Um, same with me. My contact info is on uh, all my stories. Uh, email's great. Um, Twitter. I love Twitter. Um, so feel free to connect with me there. Uh, my handle is at Michaela Porter PC, M-I-K-A-E-L-A-P-O-R-T-E-R-P-C. <laughs> Perfect. And understand South Carolina has a Twitter as well. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, that's at understand SC. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us and thanks everyone for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.